know, I know some people here like football, one or two of us anyway, so I'm going to read you two different accounts of the same football match, and you can tell me which one you prefer, okay? Or tell me the difference between the two. Okay, so this is the first one. Smith headed in Browning's cross to win the cup for Albion, okay? That's it, just one line, one sentence. Smith headed in Browning's cross to win the cup for Albion. I'm not even sure Albion have players called Smith and Browning, but I'm not, a, I'm not an Albion fan, so I don't know. Okay, that's the first account. The second account is like this. Smith bounded across the lush turf with the joyous alacrity of a whippet released from his stall. Bearing down upon the goal mouth, he glimpsed the ball swinging in from the direction of the corner, seeming to hang suspended in the air like a glowing orb. I got this from the sun yesterday. Majestically, instinctively, he rose like a salmon to meet the ball's trajectory with his cranium. Seconds later, as the ball nestled itself in the back of the net, causing it to billow like a spinnaker, the crowd erupted, sensing now that Albion had the cup in the bag. Now, what is the difference between those two accounts? Not much, probably. They're talking about the same event. They're talking about Smith heading a goal to win the cup for Albion. They're both giving the same basic facts. But the second account is using more imagery, more detail, to try to to portray a picture of what's going on, to conjure up this vivid image of this footballer heading the ball into the back of the net to win the cup. Everything this second account says is absolutely true. There's no fabrication. He did rise like a salmon to head the ball. But the way it's written is is not just the bare facts. It's supposed to evoke an image in your mind, a vivid image of this footballer scoring this goal. Trying to convey the drama, the majesty of that moment. If you're a football fan, you know the, the ecstasy when your team scores that goal. You know, there are a few feelings in the world like it. And this, this writer has used his, his skill as, a, as an author to try to create this picture of what's going on using this vivid poetical imagery. Most of us know Genesis 1, the account of God creating the world. And Genesis 1 is written from a, from a certain perspective. It's written very much with the facts in mind. So the writer of Genesis just goes through the facts, the, the six days of creation, listing the things that God has done in creating the world. And this psalm is exactly the same. It covers exactly the same events of Genesis 1. But it's far more like that second account of the football match than the first account in that it uses vivid imagery and poetical ideas to conjure up the drama and the majesty of what happened when God spoke this world into being with his enormous creativity and power to bring this universe as we see it into being. So when we read this psalm, we have to be aware this is, this is poetry. This is imagery. This is something which is supposed to, to move us. You know, the, the worst thing I could do in the world was to make this into a kind of dry exposition. We go home and say, oh, that was very interesting. Yes, yeah. We, we want to inspire our hearts to worship God when we read this psalm. That's the, that's the intention of the author, to make us realize our God is great and our God is worthy of praise. It's not supposed to be just, oh, that was very interesting. An academic study is supposed to be something which moves us. 
The creation of the world is a thing of breathtaking, magnificent order and creativity. That was the introduction to the psalm. Opening up, expounding Genesis 1 in a way which is supposed to move the hearer, the reader, and say, God is glorious and I will worship him. Before we get on to this psalm, I want to say something about Jesus Christ this morning. When you read this psalm about God's creative work, remember what the New Testament says about the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus. My Lord Jesus. What does it say in John chapter 1? It says, Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. When you read this psalm, don't just imagine God the Father doing this by himself. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, before he became a man and walked upon this earth, was with the Father, creating the universe, the world, and all its great teeming abundance and life. What does Paul say in Colossians 1? He says exactly the same thing. We look at the unity of Scripture. For in him, in Jesus, all things were made. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and not just that, but for him. I've said this before, I want to say this to you again. These are extraordinary claims to make about a human being, about any human being. John and Paul look at the Lord Jesus and they say, this man who walked among us, well, amongst John anyway, who ate food with us and walked with us for those those years in, in Israel and served us and served alongside us, this man was no ordinary man. This man was the man through whom this universe was created and for whom it was created. How could you say that about a person? What impact John, Jesus must have made upon John to cause him to say, this man who died on that Roman cross was the one who created this world and for whom this world was created. How magnificent is our Lord Jesus? How glorious is our Lord Jesus? So when you read this psalm, don't ignore Jesus. He was there with the Father creating this world, speaking it into being, in all its splendor. This psalm, I believe, tells us three things about God. It tells us about God's greatness, it tells us about God's goodness, and it tells us about God's glory. I want to start with the first point, which is God's greatness. Think how powerful God is. Look at verse 1. How does the psalm start? It says this, Praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is calling upon himself to pray, praise God and says, my soul, my soul, praise the Lord. This is the right thing to do. This is this, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. There's a declaration right at the beginning, you are very great, God. It's worth asking yourself the question this morning. Is God great in your eyes? Is he great in your eyes? When you hear about the Lord, does your soul find itself moved to praise him and declare, God, you are very great? Everything else in this psalm is a catalogue 
of God's works. The psalmist makes this declaration, Lord, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty. And then he gives you reason after reason after reason why God is great in his eyes. Look at verse 2. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. This is poetic imagery. We picture God as a great and glorious king, robing himself in light. In scripture, light is so often used as a picture of God's glory, as a picture of God's presence in both the Old and New Testaments. And God is is pictured as this great monarch ruling, robing himself in the light which he created, even before he created the sun and the moon. God is majestic, dear friends. God is glorious to behold. And then he says this, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. He's talking about the celestial realm. He's talking about the stars in the heavens. What does this involve? Well, let me, let me bring this back to, to real life. This is, this is beautiful poetry, but let's grapple with some realities here. God stretches out the heavens like a tent. What does this mean? He's talking about vast sizes. I mentioned to you before in a sermon, there is, a, there is a star somewhere, a great big red supergiant star, which is 2,100 times bigger than our sun, somewhere in the universe. And there are many stars like that. They're only the ones that we know about. Our sun is so large that 1,300,000 Earths could fit inside it. You can check the facts, I could be wrong, but the sun is pretty big compared to the Earth. Massive, in fact. And yet there is a star somewhere out there which is 2,000 times bigger than our sun. Can you imagine our Earth compared to that, that massive star? How small it would be. We're talking about vast numbers. I mentioned this before as well. Our sun is one of at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Just in the Milky Way. I read that there are, there are at least 100 billion galaxies which are observable from Earth, that you can see from Earth. Obviously, with equipment, you can't just see it on the, in the night sky, but there are 100 billion galaxies that we know about, which each could have billions of stars. I don't know about you, when I read that, I feel deeply disturbed. How big is the universe? It could even be infinite. It probably is. It just goes on and on and on. Vast distances. Think about this as well, another fact for you. If the sun, our sun, were the size of a beach ball, you put it on top of the Empire State Building in New York, the nearest group of stars will be as far away from the, from the Empire State Building as Australia. As far away as the, the Australia is from the Empire State Building. That great distance. We've got a friend from Australia here today. And yet the word of God says... This psalm says that God stretches out the heavens like a tent. Billions of stars, huge, massive celestial bodies, great distances. And for him, making them, scattering them across the heavens is no more difficult than you and I putting up a tent in the back garden. A few weeks ago, I was in here just about to go home, and Maria turned up, uh, with a bag, and she just bought a gazebo. Um, she got me to help her put it up in here. A great big, massive gazebo. But it wasn't difficult to put up. 
For our God to create the heavens is no more difficult than putting up a gazebo. Just stretching out the fabric, putting it up. How great must this God be? How powerful must this God be? And yet, there's a very fearful thing, dear friends, in that sometimes we are more afraid of little people, aren't we? People's opinions than we are about this great God. We're more concerned to please people than we're concerned about pleasing this God who controls all these billions of stars. Think about how people mock God. People ignore God, disregard God, live their lives with no thought of God. You you don't have to go far in Brighton to find people who mock God to his face. But this is the God who made those stars, made the heavens and controls those stars. Do you see how utterly fearful it is to mock God? A God like this. Look at the next verse. So we've talked about the celestial realm. It says this, verse 3. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the cloud his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. When he talks about his upper chambers, he's talking about the mysterious place where God dwells. He's talking about heaven. Have you ever been in a storm and seen the clouds churning up the sky? I remember once there was a storm coming in from the Atlantic. I went down to Brighton Pier and watched it as the clouds came in. What a magnificent sight. The waves were crashing. The sky looked like it was being torn in two. In the ancient world, when this was written, a storm would have been a most terrifying phenomenon. God is pictured in this psalm as a majestic king riding upon the storm. I don't think we we should take this literally, it's poetry, but God is there seen as this king riding in his chariot upon the clouds of the sky. Even hurricane-force winds and bolts of lightning are subject to him. It says here in verse 4, he makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Flames of fire could be talking about bolts of lightning. In the New Testament, in Hebrews, a connection is made between angels and this, this psalm. But the point is, is that God reigns majestic as a king over the raw power and forces and the chaos of nature. He's seen to be glorious. So God, God made the celestial realm. He controls the wind and the waves. But look at this as well. God also makes earth's boundaries secure. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. I don't know if you've ever laid laid foundations for a conservatory or for some kind of building or a shed. God is pictured as a master craftsman who is building, laying a foundation for the world and setting the world securely upon it in a way which it cannot be moved. God is meticulously working on the structure of the earth. He places it on its axis so that we get seasons spins around so that we get day and night. 
and the earth cannot be moved. Aren't you glad about that? Imagine if one day the earth just decided to float off into space like a child's balloon, a helium balloon. What would happen to us? But God has set it on its axis and it will not be moved until God says it should be moved. It will just continue to do what God has ordered it to do, ordained it to do. It goes round and round in those cycles. God has set its secure boundaries in place. In verse 6, it says this, You covered it with the deep water, with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. We read in Genesis, don't we, the waters covered the earth initially. And then God spoke, and the forces of nature, the waters, the mighty waters, fled at his rebuke and moved into their proper places. Verse 9 says this, you set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. So, of course, we had the global flood, Noah's flood, when God temporarily allowed the waters to to overcome those boundaries and overstep the mark and cover the earth once again. And God promised, didn't he, that he never again would flood the earth. But we do have floods, don't we? We had a flood in Lewis a few years ago. Sometimes the waters do, in local places, overstep the mark. They burst their banks And these are reminders to us that God has set the boundaries of the waters of the earth. Because in Lewis, the waters went down again, didn't they, after a few weeks or after a few days, back to their usual place. And the fact that the waters go back to where they belong reminds us that God has set those boundaries in place. So it can rain and rain and rain and the sea never gets full up. The sea never just rises up to cover the earth again. Mark mentioned the water cycle. What an amazing thing that is, that water evaporates and goes up to the clouds and comes down again, and the seas never get full up and cover the earth. And then there are the orderly cycles of the sun and moon as well. So look at verse 19. It says this, The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. The other night I was lying well, sitting on my couch and looked out over the valley and I could see the moon rising. Beautiful. I think Aaron took a picture of it. Put it on Facebook. And Ray made a pun about it. Arthur Moon, he said. Isn't the moon a wonderful thing? God has made this light, lesser light, to govern the night. The moon is bright enough to help you get home, but it's not bright enough to keep you awake. It's a perfect... I can't think I'm grasping for the word. Perfect brightness. Not, no brighter than it needs to be. Imagine if God hadn't made a moon at all. There wouldn't be tides for one thing. But it would be pitch black at night. Before electric light, how would you have got home? The sun rises and sets every single morning. You wake up, you see the sun coming up. I see it over the Amex Stadium. And I go to bed tonight knowing that the sun will come up tomorrow. All this order that God has made is predictable and certain, isn't it? We get eclipses, we get stuff like that, but they can be explained by science. We don't get unexpected phenomena, do we? We don't just wake up one morning and the sun refuses to shine. It's just pitch black and nobody can explain it. There's always a reason. Isn't it good that we have darkness to sleep? 
If, it was, if we had sun 24 hours a day, all sorts of things would go wrong, but we wouldn't be able to sleep. The sun would be in our window. We'd have to have big blackout curtains. The fact that we have darkness reminds us that we need to rest and sleep. Isn't God so wise to build all this into the order of his creation? Imagine if I went to bed tonight, you went to bed and you didn't know whether the sun was going to come up tomorrow. 50-50, maybe, we hope it does, we're not sure. How fearful would that be? Imagine in the darkest of winters when the sun is at its weakest and there's not much warmth from the sun and all the trees are, are bare. And you didn't know the sun would come back in the spring in its brightness to, to warm the earth and to make the leaves come on the trees that there might be a harvest in the summer. Of course, our pagan ancestors didn't know that. They were doing all this weird stuff, lighting midwinter fires to beg the sun god to come back. We don't need to do that because our God has programmed this in to his universe. Orderly cycles of the sun and moon, times and seasons. We're in summer now, late summer, autumn will come, then winter, then spring, then summer again. Think about scientific laws like gravity. I know if I were to drop this Bible on the floor, the Bible would fall down. It wouldn't just float around in the church. That would be weird, wouldn't it? When you get the bus into town, the bus doesn't just one day float off into the sky, does it? Because God has built gravity into the universe, a law which cannot be broken. And there are many, many things like this. And we, friends, should appreciate the order and stability that God has put into his creation, the wisdom, the predictability of it. We don't live in this kind of world of randomness. We live in a world of order that God has built into it. Without this, life would be intolerable. You wouldn't be able to put up with it. It would be impossible if you couldn't predict the order of the world. I mentioned the vast distances of the universe. I mentioned the fact that some people mock God this great God. But if you're a Christian, and you know the Lord Jesus, you should be comforted because this great God is on your side. This great God who controls these billions of stars loves you and cares about you. Don't think he's too busy running the universe to be concerned about your, your operation or your problems at work, whatever it might be. If you're facing opposition from non-believers, family members, it's very comforting to know that God is on your side, this powerful God. When we come to pray as a church or as individuals, we are praying to this great God. How have we let God be so diminished in our eyes that God becomes kind of weak and feeble, irrelevant figure rather than the almighty God, the father that we come to with our prayers and petitions? Nothing is beyond God's control. If he, can, if he can control that massive star, he can certainly control your life and help you in your situation. So that was the greatness of God. I could say a lot more about that. The second point is the goodness of God. God's goodness. Think how generous he is. Verse 31 says this. May the, Lord, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. 
my dear friends, everything God has created is abundantly good. We read that in Genesis. We read it here. And God rejoices in his works. Think about this. Everything that God has made is not primarily for our benefit. We enjoy it, and God wants us to benefit from it, but primarily it's it's made for God's glory, that he might take pleasure in it, that he might see his own glory reflected in his creative goodness. Even if no human being were to see it, God would still take pleasure in his creation. Think about the the um, Leviathan, this mysterious creature. It could be a whale, it could be some kind of sea creature, some kind of dinosaur. Nobody sees it frolicking in the depths of the ocean, but God sees it and God takes pleasure in it because he, built, he made it for his glory, for his own pleasure. Isn't God generous to allow us to share in that beauty that he's created for his own pleasure? We see in this psalm how God has designed the earth as a perfect place to accommodate and sustain life. Look at verse 11. It says this. I'll just list these off quite quickly. Verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. So when the waters receded at God's command, springs came up from the earth to water the earth. I found a spring when I was on holiday. It was gushing pure water out of the side of a hill in Somerset. We drink that water straight from the spring. What a life-giving thing that was. The waters water the earth, and what happens? It enables vegetation to grow, plant life. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, the cedars that Mark showed you on the screen. And these provide home for wildlife. Look at verse 17. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the pine tree. Do you see how this all fits together? The springs come, they water the earth, grass grows, trees grow, birds find their food, they nest in the trees. There's a complete, integrated, complex system of life which God has created, interdependent. Every part depends on other parts. Unbelievably intricate, detailed. As I mentioned, God provides vegetation, plants to feed animals and people. Verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. It says this in verse 13, the earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. And verse 28, what does it say? It says this, when you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. You've got this beautiful picture of God abundantly providing for his creatures, all of them from the least to the greatest. And have you noticed that God's provision is not just for the bare essentials of life? God could have created just one type of food. And that's, that's all we would need to eat and live off. But God has created an abundance of stuff. Look at verse 15. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. This is talking about food processing. People have raw materials which they can use to make things which make life more pleasurable. It mentions wine. Wine doesn't just happen. You have to make wine using grapes and yeast, or the yeast in the skins of the grapes. Oil. Oil has to be processed from plants. Bread. You have to 
you know, well, you know what, how you make bread. You grind, grind the corn, make flour, you bake bread. You process ingredients, natural products, to make things which make life more pleasurable. In the same way, our shops are full of stuff that we humans have, have used to produce stuff, which is good. That Wensleydale cheese in your fridge. Pizza. Doesn't just happen, doesn't grow on a tree, does it? You make it using the raw ingredients that God has given. Some cosmetics that some of you ladies use, probably. Moisturizer, I don't know, does that come from plants? I don't know, but it comes from somewhere, doesn't it? Chocolate, that doesn't grow on trees either. People take raw materials and they use them to produce stuff which gladdens the heart of man. Such is the abundance of God. The earth is a treasury of good things. And it was not created by accident, but designed by a generous God. It's the perfect environment needed to sustain a good quality of life for all its inhabitants. And then there are God's creatures, verses 24 to 26. Look what he says here, the psalmist. How many are your works, O Lord? He's wondering. Look, how many are your works, the things that you've made? In wisdom, you made them all. John Calvin said this. He said, the more you meditate on the works of God, the more bottomless it seems. This week I was meditating on this and I felt myself compelled to worship God. I felt moved in my spirit. But God, you are a great God. Did you know there are more insects in one square mile of countryside than there are people living on the world today? More than six billion, apparently. What does it say here in verse 25? There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number. See how he draws on that rich, poetic image, teeming with life. I read on Wikipedia there are 33,600 species of fish. And someone estimated there are 3.5 trillion fish in the oceans. 3.5 3.5 trillion fish, individual fish. I don't, we'll never know that number, but God knows. The sea is teeming with life. That's just fishes. There are something like 60,000 species of trees and 3.4 trillion trees in the world by estimate. Obviously, trees get cut down all the time. They get burned down in the Amazon. New trees grow. I've got about 50 in my garden growing. Trees. The world is full of them. On Monday, I went to the nature reserve with a family. I looked at the different trees that grow in Sussex. You've got field maple and oak, black poplar, crack willow, goat willow, all different types of trees, sweet chestnut. They're all so different from each other. The leaves are different. The fruits are different. Some have nuts. Some have fleshy fruits. Some are big, some are small, hawthorn, elderberry, all these different trees, the vast diversity of life that God has created. This psalm mentions the birds. Apparently there are 10,000 different species of birds in the world, at least. And 400, was it 400 billion individual birds? Birds without number. Many never even seen by the human eye, and yet known to God, created by him. What a wonderful God. What creativity. 
And even though this, this planet has been damaged and ravaged by human activity, there's still enough goodness there for us to say, what a glorious and great God we serve. What a creative God, what a good God, what a great God, what a powerful God, what a generous God. We Christians have a duty, I believe, to appreciate God's creation. Let me say this, there is a kind of environmentalism today which, which seems to me to be very weird and very dark and very godless and very manipulative and very hypocritical, and very anti-authority. And I do not believe this is what Christians should be involved with, but there is a right kind of Christian environmentalism. You might be surprised to hear me say this, but Christians should be concerned about the environment. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because you see people, godless people, using this as, as a means to manipulate people. We should be deeply concerned about the planet we live in. We should not ravage the planet or exploit it. We should not approve of wanton destruction of the environment. We should use the planet. God has given it to us to use, but we should use it in a wise and godly way for the benefit of us, for the benefit of other people, for the benefit of people who live in other countries, and for the benefit of future generations. Yes, Julia. Amen to that. Julia just said we, we should be good stewards of the earth. Steward is somebody who has been entrusted to care for something, to look after something. There's an old-fashioned word, husbandry. We don't use that word very much. Animal husbandry, I think they do it at Plumpton College. Husbandry, looking after something, caring for something, wise and prudent management of something. And we Christians, we should be good stewards of the environment we live in, I believe. We should manage it well and look after it. The more you meditate on God's works in creation, the more of a cure for atheism it becomes, doesn't it? Such is the blindness, willful, sinful blindness of human beings that we see all this and many people refuse to acknowledge God's hand in it. Even men like, I don't know, David Attenborough, who knows more about the diversity of life on earth than most of us, refuses to give God the glory for this but he rather attributes it to a cosmic accident, evolution. If you were to go and see a beautiful building like Salisbury Cathedral, for example, I went to Salisbury, that's a magnificent cathedral. You look at it, breathtaking. People don't go there to Salisbury Cathedral and say, oh, wow, this cathedral, I wonder where it came from. I wonder how it happened. Just emerged, brick after brick, stone after stone, and it just rose one day by chance. We just know instinctively that this, this cathedral has been designed. It had a designer, it had a maker, makers, and they worked hard to build it with great skill and care to create a beautiful edifice. When it comes down to the, the infinitely beautiful created order, and I've just touched the surface, people put it down to pure chance. Romans 1 let this be a warning if this is you. It talks about people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What may be known about God is plain to them, says Romans 1, because God has made it plain to them. 
But since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Romans says, God's power and divine nature clearly seen by what has been created. Think today, dear friends, about the foolishness, the bleakness, the ingratitude of the atheist position. This is the worldview that your children are going to be be subjected to by default. Every time you go to the museum, millions of years ago, no regard for God, and we need to grapple with this and stand against this and teach our children the right way so that God God is the creator of all this goodness. Verses 27 to 30 says this. This talks about God's provision. Do you remember the old harvest hymn? All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. If you were to stand outside the supermarket this afternoon and ask people, where does your food come from? I think the vast majority of people would not give glory to God for providing food for them. Verse 29 reminds us that if God were to hide his face, withdraw his blessing, then we would be terrified. Look at verse 29. It says this. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they they die and return to the dust. Just imagine if God were to, to, to withhold his blessing and hide his face from people, what would happen? it would have very serious consequences for life on earth. Droughts in the world remind us how vulnerable and weak we are. Despite scientific knowledge and technology, they remind us that we still are subject to God's provision. Some people are very, very worried about about a no-deal Brexit and what will happen, will there be food shortages? But they have no regard for the fact that God, if he wanted to, could turn off the supply and cause us to be in a panic, in a very difficult situation. What if God were to turn the rain off for a year? We had no rain. The country would become a desert. There'll be no crops, there'll be no harvest. Food prices would shoot up. There'll be civil unrest and riots in the streets, perhaps. Every man for himself. What if God turned the sun off for a year? There was no light. We'd have be like a nuclear winter, wouldn't it? What would happen? Modern economies, nations, life as we know it would collapse very quickly. That's what would happen if God withdrew his blessing and turned his face away. God would never do that, you might say. God would never do that. That's not going to happen. Dear friends, there's a danger. Because God's provision is so constant, we know the sun will come up. We know there'll be rain. That's supposed to make us glorify God for his faithfulness. Instead, we take him for granted, don't we? We neither give thanks to him nor glorify him, as Romans said. But consider something closer to home, something which is actually going to happen to each one of us. Look at verse 30. When you send your spirit, sorry, verse 29, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Remember, Life and death are in the hands of God. All the time, every day, 
Thousands of people die. Thousands of people are born. Such is life. One day, every person in this room is going to die. One day, God will say, your time has come to an end, and he will call you, and you have no choice about that. And no medicine or doctor in the world can save you. Your life is in the hands of God. My life is in the hands of God. In the same way, God produces new life. Animals reproduce. Humans reproduce. Babies are born. Life goes on. All this is in God's good hand. The final point is think how glorious God is. So we've had his goodness, we've had his greatness, now his glory. As I've said, God is, is a glorious God. He is unspeakably worthy of praise. The Bible talks a lot about the glory of God. It's hard to define what it is, but it's about the imminent glory of God. The, the, just When you look at him, you say, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he worthy of praise? Think about those, those facts I read to you about the size of the universe and what God has done. Think how big God is and how small we are. The proper response is to worship him and say, what a glorious God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Let me bow the knee and worship you. This is what the psalmist is doing in, in verses 33, 30, uh, 34. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to, to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. This man who wrote this psalm is saying, my life's great cause is to worship God. I will sing to him as long as I live. I will sing his praises. This is the Christian life, isn't it? This is our highest pleasure, to praise our God, to worship him in our, in our deeds, in our words. That's what we do when we come together as Christians. We gather together not just to ask God for things. We come to worship him and declare his glory and say, isn't he wonderful? We want to praise you and acknowledge who you are. Let me say this as well, just to finish. The ocean waters flee at God's rebuke. The earth trembles when he looks at it. It says that, doesn't it, in verse 32. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, just like Mount Sinai when Moses was there, who touches the mountains and they smoke. That volcano on Mars, which is three times higher than than Everest, God touches it and it smokes. That star, 2,000 times bigger than our sun, does exactly what God has ordained it to do. The sun and moon function in exactly the way that God has ordained for them. They do what God has commanded them to do. They do it faultlessly, exactly in line with his will and purpose since the day he created them. All these things obey God and do his will. They fear him. They honor him in their obedience. When he tells you, or me, a little human being, to do something. How often do we say, no, like a petulant child. We say, no, I will not do what you've told me to do. I will not obey your commands. I will not have you rule over my life. I will not go to church. I will not pray to you. I will not seek you. I will not thank you. Whether you do it consciously or not, Some people are not aware they're doing this. You're turning your back on God and saying, no, I will not obey you. 
unlike all these other things, the stars and the sun. Imagine, dear friends, being on the wrong side of this mighty God. This is very serious. Imagine him being angry with you. Wouldn't you do anything to make peace with him? Imagine how fearful that would be. But if he were angry, no sacrifice would be too much. No price would be too much to pay to be at peace with him. In all this good creation, there is one thing which has no place. I don't know if you spotted it. Look right at the end of the psalm. Verse 35. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. That is the only negative part of this psalm. In all this abundant goodness, sinners, those who refuse to praise God, to thank him, to give him the glory, to obey him, to submit to his lordship, these people, sadly, are a blight on this good earth. All of us are sinners. All of us have broken God's law. All of us deserve his judgment. But there is one through whom this world was made and for whom this world was made who came to this world not as an animal, not to save the animals, but as a man came to die on that cross to take away God's anger upon himself so that we will not have to be subject to the judgment because he loved us. At the moment, there's a time of grace, a season of grace. But in God's right time, that desire, may sinners vanish from the earth, that will become a reality. Speaking of God's coming kingdom in Revelation 21, it says this, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does, not, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you're not a Christian, you go on ignoring God, disobeying God. There will be no place for you in the kingdom to come. God will make good the request of the psalmist that sinners should vanish from the earth. There will be nothing impure or ungodly in in this kingdom to come, but only godliness and light and justice and truth. So make sure you're on the right side of God. Make sure you've made peace with God. Be reconciled to him. Believe in Jesus and be saved. He'll welcome all who come. Come to him. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus and be saved. If you haven't done so. And with us, with God's people, praise him all the days of your life and for eternity. So what a great God we serve.